Hi guys, it's Bayo here, and welcome to a Backstreet Boys interview special with a very special Backstreet Girl. Um, here we try and mix up our content uh, with new and up-and-coming talent, as well as big names from the past. Um, but our guest this week I mean, is still as high-profile to athletics fans 16 years after her retirement as she was in her heyday. Um, consequently, we have loads and loads to talk about, um, including so many questions from you lot. Um, our one-hour chat turned into nearly two hours, so we're splitting this interview into two parts, and you lucky listeners get a double dose of the gracious, the legendary and the age-defying Mr. Denise Lewis. Hey, this is Neve Emerson, and you're listening to the Backstreet Boys. How's lockdown treating you? Lockdown is a thing, really. It's been interesting. I think the first couple of weeks, it was really good i thought wow this is a great opportunity for me to exercise more and i did i literally was training every single day twice a day at sometimes it was like being a professional athlete again and then unfortunately homeschooling started and changed the landscape of everything um so now we were like what six weeks in um and yeah, I had a bad week last week, I'll be honest. I just felt um, everything was getting on top of me. I don't know, just a bit of Groundhog Day. Um, you know, a couple of uh, technical issues with, you know, logging on for kids and blah, 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 the homeschooling. Um, so I had a bit of a dip, but I'm feeling good again now. Glad to hear it. Well, we're just here to talk about your fabulous career and bring back some great memories for you of all the great things you did in the athletics world. Um, We've known each other quite a long time. I think you, you first met Jodie back in 2004 at the, at the Olympics. But this is the first time you've actually been on the, the um, Backstreet Boys. We talked to you lots of places. But you haven't actually come on the show before. So thank you ever so much for, for coming in to see us. So um, let's start at the very beginning, I suppose. Do, actually, no, I'm going to start somewhere else. When, when you're prepping for an interview, um, you know, we have lots of sources these days. We can, you know, I've read your book. We can go to the internet. We can find all different stuff out, out there. Have you um, actually looked at your Wikipedia page recently? No, because I'm sure people can alter that, can't they? So I don't even know what it's got on there these days. Well, the problem is it's got nothing on there. Um, (laughs) You're you're on Wikipedia, don't worry. But if we didn't, if I didn't know you well, you would think your career started at the um, 2000 Olympics. Um, There's there's no mention of anything before. Um, I'm going to give a shout out now to um, whoever's listening, to some of our uh, some of our, our listeners, and to some of Denise's fans. Can someone? Big athletics nerd, go in there and please sort out um, Denise's Wikipedia page. It'll be really helpful for anyone who's doing an interview in the future <laughs> because <laughs> at the moment she's Olympic champion, but there's, there's very no little history. else information. No history, no, no history that. at all. Damn. No. Okay. So, fortunately, you know, I've, I've done my research. So, I know that you were um, born in 1972. Um, you brought up in, in Wolverhampton, yeah. which is near Birmingham, isn't That's it? Right. Um, and it's so interesting. I'm reading through your book, and your background is so, so similar to me and Jodie's um, in so many ways. I was actually like quite sort of shocked. It's single parent mums, um, dad not around, um, our nans lived along the road or lived nearby to, to look after us. Um, music was such a big thing, you know, in your house. You said you're into like Motown and reggae, and that's exactly the same in my house. Um, Got to dance very early, got into athletics very early. Um, interesting that your, your mum never remarried, you said, or had real sort of relationships after that, exactly the same as my mum. Um, so I was actually reading through and thinking I, I sort of um, can see so much of like what you went through, the same as like what, what we did. Um, growing up in Wolverhampton in the early 70s, um, sort of a, a black family, how was that? Your mum had come over from Jamaica, hadn't she? Yeah, my mum was sent for by her her mum, um, who'd come over maybe 
gosh, about probably 10 years before that. No, no, just less than that. Sorry, about eight years. You know, she left my mom in Jamaica with her mom. So my great grandmother, usual history, usual story, better opportunities, trying to work, provide for the family. Um, So my mom really, I think she struggled when she first came to the UK. Um, Mm. You know, you're going into that sort of teenage phase a um, bit of identity. She missed Jamaica a lot and her brother. Um, and I, I just think she, she struggled to set, settle. Although she was at school, she had friends and everything else. I think there was a real longing for the Jamaica sunshine and the life that she knew up until the age of sort of 10, 11. It's a very big change. People came here for better opportunities. But of course, when you're that age, all you can think of is your friends, the sunshine, the beaches, you know, not cold, grey, miserable, miserable England in the winter. That's it. She, she often told me about the first time she saw snow um, and how magical that was and not understanding what it was at all. But yeah, yeah it was very, you know, we had a humble existence. My mum worked right from the get go, uh, full time, had me very young. Um, and so we were always just like a little team, you know, she was my everything and and I would say that very early on I learned to fall in line um you know that she depended on me I depended on her um so even when I started sort of my athletics um there was that trust there that you know you're going to go off and do your thing but I need you to be safe I need you to be thinking about you know traveling and being confident so I was very independent even from the age of sort of 9, 10, 11, you know, walking myself to primary school um, and in the evenings, my mum, because my mum worked, I had to, she tried to organise, um, you know, people to look after me just until, to bridge that gap between sort of 3.30 and maybe 5.30 when she would probably get home. So I was very resilient and very tough from, from an early age. You said that your mum and mum yourself were like a really tight team. Your, your dad wasn't in the picture at all. And you said in your book that it wasn't something you were ever really particularly interested in finding out about him. And you, you never have. No, it didn't, just didn't feature. It wasn't my world. It wasn't something that I thought about. My mum was mum. I didn't even think about the fact that there was not that male person in the household. It's probably not until I was at school that people started talking about mum yeah. and dad. Um, remember, I was an only child, so, you know... I was already just on my own in that way. So people talking about brothers and sisters, but I never really thought about my dad because my mum was my everything. Um, And I I do remember a time when someone asked me directly about my my dad and I just made up some story. Just like, well, you know, he works away and, you know, I think he's fallen in quicksand and just something so stupid. But it wasn't until then I thought, okay, well, this is a different type of family. But I never had that longing, that urgency to know more about him, even though my mom always said, if you want to know more about him, then I'll make that connection. But I didn't. It's exactly the same as myself and my brother. Exactly the same. You know, never had a bad word to say about my dad, but just never, never had any particular interest. I'm sure he's perfectly nice, you know. Um, you got into lots of activities very young. You did dance for long long time and then you were very good at sport at school which led you to athletics 
And once um, you got taken to athletics club, you kind of, the, the bug bit you, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think my mum just wanted me to have as much opportunities and to be involved in, you know, activities because I was an only child she tried to make sure that I wasn't bored <laughs> so I did dance um school really helped because you know I loved tearing up and down the schoolyard and you know organizing races and competitions at my break time so when I eventually watched the Olympics in Mora, <laughs> 1980 <laughs> um yeah that kind of was that moment where I said oh wow this running thing, you know, you can really take it to a whole new level. You can really level up here. So I, um, yeah, I asked my mom if I could go to the local track. She did the research. She found out where it was. And um, I joined. I tried to join uh, probably earlier than they would take me. Yeah. So by the age of eight. And um, I had to wait a whole year before they would actually allow me to become a member. Um, but I was there right on the day, um, my ninth birthday, and signed up. And you never really stopped I mean from from reading about you there was never a, a, a lots of kids you know lots of um especially girls it seems get to a certain age and they kind of drop out for one reason or another your, your first coach was Bill Hand this is a um Wolverhampton and Bill said isn't it yay. he he yay <laughs> he had a phrase I think that he the three things he was scared of were boobs boys and Birchfield so <laughs> boobs is like just girls growing up getting older boys was boys getting involved and the girls dropping up because of that and Birchfield is the, the big club down the road. Um, so from a young age, you were um, competing in athletics, but B- Birchfield was the big club down the road and eventually you did sort of succumb to them, didn't you? I did. You know, I, I loved my time at Wolverhampton and Bilston. Um, very difficult decision to leave, but, you know, smaller, obviously town at the time, you know, you've got the big, the big sister um city that you know everything's happening they've got the big club Birchfield as you said you know better facilities um and probably at the time better coaches then so it was a natural gravitation to that club even though that would mean the journey time for me was going to be very different and so that was a whole new conversation with my mom about why I'm actually going to be traipsing across you know the Midlands to go and train at the age of 13. You had to go get a bus from Wolverhampton to the station, the, sta- the, the bus, the train from, from Wolverhampton station into Birmingham. And then you had to do that bus ride from the station out to the Alexandra Stadium, which we've all done on numerous occasions. That was a big, big round journey. You, you were only like, what, 12, 13? That's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's kind of, you know, thinking about it, it's, I, I mean, you know, I'm a mom now. I just, I, would I let my son or my daughter do that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Very, very different times. Very different times. (laughs) But my mum didn't drive and it was inconceivable that she was ever going to do that journey because she was working, you know. Yeah. And so it was a case of pack your kit bag, make sure you've got everything, schlep it to school and do that journey and do it on the way back. You know, I used to tear through New Street trying to make my connections. It was hilarious. Knocking people out of the way with my big bag um, and my school bag. Uh, but it was my life. That was it. I loved, I loved athletics. There was just nothing else for me. Just, there was everything about it. Everything about it. You know, just the sense of freedom, the sense of adrenaline, um, watching the old athletes because back then you know the athletes actually trained in the country <laughs> and <laughs> and you could see you know I was, when I was at Wolverhampton I could you know 
you know, the old days Sonia Lanneman used to be on the track, you know, Gary Cook was also a member at the time, um, Tessa, we, she was our legend there. And so we had our senior athletes on the track and it was the same when I moved to Birchfield. You'd see the bigger groups, um, sprinters, throwers, tearing around the track, organised, disciplined, and you just thought, yeah, I had a sense of belonging and that was it. You did that so well because that was actually my next question. I've, I've got written down here, Kathy Cook, Tessa, Sonia Lanneman, Joan Baptiste, yeah. it says, um, who were people you could see as a kid. This is, this is huge because as a kid, when you're like 12, 13, these people are huge, huge idols, aren't they? Gods, yeah. exactly. I remember as, you know, when me and Jodie used to go up to um, Crystal Palace when we were like 15, 16, and it could be the, the sort of just anyone in the British team was like so exciting to meet them. But you were there training on the same track. That must be really incentive. It was, it was just everything. Just to be able to, you know, back then, you know, you, we had a, a rule at the club that if you had international vests, you know, you wouldn't really be parading them on the track. You know, right. they were like gold dust, um, sacred. Um, but you knew the internationals there, you know, knew the people that had earned their stripes. And so it was very inspirational um, that someone from your region cause has, has made it going in that direction. And so you try to watch and learn. Um, and just, as I said, that sense of belonging, you know, one team, a part of a club and um, you, you loved your badge. You really did. Your coach at this time was Daryl Bunn, who was more of a, a long jump expert, which is why you'd gone to him in the first place, because long jump was initially your, your event, wasn't it? Yeah, I loved long jump and I loved hurdling. So I had the opportunity um, at, for a couple of English schools um, to go for one or the other, but I always went for the long jump in the end because I felt it safer. <laughs> safer. Yeah. So I always went for long jump and, and Daryl had, had internationals as well at the time. Um, sort of... Uh, I thought it was made sense to train with that sort of group. And yeah, I didn't realise that heptathlon was going to be my life at that stage. It was very much long jump, junior internationals as well for long jump. Um, yeah, I thought that was going to be the one. Um, so you had quite a big success at the, the um, English schools, which was such a big thing at the time. It's huge. Is it, it's just not really anymore, is it? Or is it just because I'm older and I don't take so much notice? But... Um, it used to be a really, really big deal. It was kind of like a mini Olympics to the people who got uh, got chosen to go. How was your experience at the at the English schools? Loved it. I have such fond memories of the English schools. I mean, <laughs> it's, those are the times I met, you know, the Darren Campbells of this world, um, Donna Fraser. Uh, just the amount of athletes that came through English schools that would go on to become, you know, as I said, junior internationals. Um, we were West Mids, obviously, West Mids best kids. <laughs> we used to terrorise, chant, put stickers everywhere. Whichever city we went to, we would stamp our annoying fluorescent stickers on a lamppost, you <laughs> name it. We were just the rebels. But they were such happy times. And again, set you up for understanding that you're part of a team, whether you're um, staying in a hotel or being billeted, you had to respect that people were competing at different times, um, cheering people on so it was never about the self it was always then about the team and the, the stripes and who you're representing um and I loved it and again people always ask me you know was there one single defining moment that told you you were going to be 
you know, you wanted to pursue the life in sport. I say not just any one. There are several stepping stones along the way. And English schools was probably one of those stepping stones because for the next couple of years, three, four years, you know, I that was the highlight of my year. That yeah. was what I looked forward to doing. Um, you were a good junior. You made the you made the teams. You made the um. You went to the you, you got chosen for the European in junior championships twice. The first one you couldn't go. You injured your your foot, didn't you? Um, and this is when you had to first change your jumping leg. Is that right? Yes. Oh, you have done your research. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I that was uh, oh man, that was such a miserable time. Um, you know, there's a load of stuff going on as a teenager. You, yeah, of course. You know, you're at that crossroads. It's that transition time and so when you get injured as well you're thinking maybe this isn't the life that I thought I was going to have you know I was as you said I was a good junior but I wasn't great I was not like Catherine Mary she was you know on a different level um and so when I got injured I thought that might have been the end of me you know it was actually a knee injury on a junior international in Italy um very horrible injury and it took me about a year to recover from that this was in 89, wasn't it? So coming up to the yeah. um, European Juniors in 89. Um, right. And you also, you actually went to the European Juniors in 91. I think you came fifth. Thessalonica, 91. Uh, yeah, that was, that was an interesting championships. Again, such great camaraderie. Um, Shelley Holroyd, Catherine, Mary, Darren, Marcy Richardson, um, uh, but then she's Bailey now. But so many of my friends and people that I, I grew up with were at those championships. It was just a good championships. Um, and finishing fifth was was OK. It was, I thinking whether I would actually then leap on to take another step because it just felt like I was, I'd plateaued a little bit. There's a time, I think, when all athletes, that, that jump from junior to senior, which is a really, really tricky transition, especially as it coincides with a lot of... Um, you know, just you doing teenage things. It's like going out and drinking and boyfriends and all, and all the rest of it. Um, there's a great bit in your book which made me laugh out loud when it said that you're, um, you were doing a, quite a bit of partying and, and that at the time. You still did your <laughs> athletics, but you were being, you know, you being a teenage girl like you would. It said your, your favourite um, drink was diamond white and black. Um, oh, which made me laugh because like, the amount of diamond white we used to drink as teenagers. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Listen, that, that drink was lethal. <laughs> lethal. I mean, how it ever made the shelf, I don't know. <laughs> totally agree. Uh, it was it was affordable. Yes, exactly. Um, and and like rocket fuel. Yeah. So you know, I, I obviously was training, so I was a bit of a lightweight anyway. So two bottles, three, and I'm finished. Well, just finished. for people who don't know, diamond white is a really really strong like white cider. I don't know why cider. White, it's a it's, white cider, but it's like it's not like a refreshing. Apple cider it's like literally tastes like petrol or something doesn't it it's, it's <laughs> absolutely hideous but it's super super cheap and really really alcoholic so as kids I'm not sure if it's, it's still around but I don't know if it's the same now but as kids it's just what you used to drink because it was like and you, you could get it in two litre bottles so like we used to buy I, I never went there <laughs> we used to I buy the two there. litre bottles and, and drink them before we went out so <laughs> um, uh, but I just thought you know I I, I like to think that, you know, balance is, is everything. You know, I loved my athletics, but I loved being a teenager. And yeah. so I tried to I tried to wear both hats. <laughs> um, but there was a point where you kind of know that I think this is the discipline with athletics or being involved in any sport that you end up working out where where you draw that line. You know, 
where that line in the sand is for you. And as I said, three three done whites was it for me. <laughs> enough, enough for anybody. So I could recover. So I could actually recover and train the next yeah. day. Um, so coming into like your your senior career, your big breakthrough was at the Commonwealth Games, and I, I very clearly remember my brother and I looking at the team for the Commonwealth Games and saying to each other, "Who is Denise Lewis?" Um, <laughs> and, and we knew everybody back then you know so like we knew the juniors we knew the senior team and so we were a bit sort of confused who's this this woman in the team we didn't know um having done so, so much research over the last week about you I, I now know why that was it's because at Thessalonica the world juniors we got 11 gold medals so the fact you were in the team and did well you're not going to notice someone who came fifth when there's people who got 11 gold medals that's already too many people to remember um and then your first major um senior championship was the Europeans in um 94 and me and Jodie had just moved in together then, and our TV didn't work. So that's the only championship which we kind of half missed. I think we saw bits of it, but we just missed you. So when the Commonwealth Games came round and our TV was working, you were in the team, we didn't know who you were, and then you went and shocked everybody, including yourself, by getting that, that amazing gold medal. I mean, it's, you, you put that so correctly. I was at that point in my young career wondering whether I would get a break. Yeah. Whether I would get a break. I, yeah, successful juniors. I mean, we had a lot of them. Yeah. Um, I actually went to Stuttgart for a, 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 domestic, a, a, a GB international and made my way across to the stadium for the World Championships. Yeah. And again, I had friends that had, were competing and I was there watching in the stands that fantastic championships. And I thought, this is this is horrible. This is not where I want to be. This is not what I've invested my time in so far. Um, so for me, 94, the Commonwealth Games was important. Again, you'd mentioned the European Championships that were before then. I, I went, I competed in the long jump, not very well at all. It's just that sinking feeling you get where, why am I underperforming? Mm. You know, why is this happening? And um, I was just determined to to put a stamp on things I, I i don't think i went there thinking i was going to win at all but i was hoping hoping that i'd come away with a medal so in the back of my head i thought maybe maybe bronze could be on the cards but you know clover court competing at the time she was the number one heptathlete um so i just needed to hold my form I was going to ask about that, actually, because you, you changed from the long jump to the um, heptathlon as a sort of in, in your teen years, because you were good at many events. You were good at the long jump, you were good at hurdles. And then I think um, Daryl Bunn, your coach, had seen you throwing a ball and realised you had a great throwing arm. So it all kind of comes together that like maybe the heptathlon is going to be the, the one for you. Um, at the time when you got to the Commonwealth Games, you weren't the British number one. I think you'd come sort of second at the um, at the trials behind Clover. Um but at the time, did you have like um, heptathlon heroes? Were there people you looked up to in the British team and then sort of further afield in, in the world? Well, at Birchfield, we had Judy Livermore, yeah. you know, Judy Simpson. So she was, you know, six foot, what, six foot one, six foot, Grace, Grace in the track. Um, so I watched her. I watched her in 86 with her beads, um, her lovely beads, as she used to compete and so I used to see her and you know getting a nod from her or a conversation with her at Birchfield Harriers for me was like wow I've just been anointed 
as I said, it's about the local heroes that you are coming into contact with on the track on a weekly basis, which I think should be the aspiration that, you know, everyone should be there, the inspiration for, for the young athletes to know that it is possible. It is possible. And so Judy was that person. And so that segue to heptathlon, uh, Judy's husband, Robin, also used to say, oh, you should try heptathlon. Come on, come on, come and do it. But I was a bit fearful, you know, because I had watched the 800 and knew that wasn't, <laughs> in, my, <laughs> that wasn't in my tank. Um, but Daryl had convinced me to give it a go. And yeah, I didn't look back. Loved every second of it. So by the time you got to the Commonwealth Games, you're coming in hoping you can, as we say, nip, nip a bronze. Um, but in order to do that, you had to get past Clover, you had to get past um, Jane Fleming from Australia. Um, you had a good competition for you, but the thing that really turned it around was the, the, the javelin, of course, which became a bit of a trademark of yours. Um, we've got a question here from um, Paolo Ivan um, on Twitter. He says, definitely ask about the javelin in the Commonwealth 94. I heard Jane Fleming said it was a fluke. <laughs> I'm sure she said a lot more things than that. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure she did. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was so funny because I remember Steve Backley and uh, Mick Hill seeing them probably on the warm-up track and just telling me to give it some welly. Just go out, you know, the javelin throws like to give you a lot of technical information. <laughs> <laughs> um, keep your point down, follow through the jab, do this, do that. Um, and in the end, as Steve often said, just give it some welly. Um, and a good long jump. And so I was just like, the sun was out, it was warm. And my first throw, I just thought, right, deep breath and ease, stay with the point. And off I went down the runway. And the moment it left my hand, I just thought, ooh, <laughs> something's happening. Ooh, it's like someone had literally picked the javelin midair and flung it a bit further on it was it was a huge throw it was just kept going and like there's some fantastic commentary from paul dickinson love him um just like yeah go on go on go on go on and he literally just illuminates that that javelin throw because it was special and yeah jane's face was a picture it, <laughs> it was just like what the hell happened there what the hell happened there? And I just lost it. I started doing jumping around. I wanted to do cartwheels. I was internally just tingling because I knew it was big and it changed the whole landscape of that heptathlon. Well, it changed the landscape of your career. Um, a gold medal, the British public don't necessarily know, any public actually don't necessarily know the difference between an Olympic, a world, a Commonwealth, a European gold medal. They see you on the front page of the newspaper holding a gold medal and you're a champion, aren't you? Um, yeah. So. So you, you win the Commonwealth Games, you're now, you know, you, you put yourself on the map, but you, of course, know that there's a big jump between the Commonwealths and the World Championships. Um, but you went to the Worlds next year, you came seventh, you, you're, you, you wanted to get top ten place, so seventh is, is pretty decent going and it's a good trajectory. It, it was, but you know, winning, when you win, obviously you're, you're thirsty for more, you are, um, but there has to be an acceptance that you're as good as you think you are or what the, the medal has said to you. And it's to, until you own that feeling, um, the performances can be a bit up and down. And I found that championship was a little bit, oh, it was just a bit sticky. You know, yeah. things were, mm, why is that not clicking? You know, I'm supposed to be this Commonwealth champion. But, you know, I still wasn't competing consistently. I hadn't found the art of training really well. Um, 
I hadn't taken things to a new level just yet and um, I, I just bobbled on through that competition. So seventh was okay. Still, still felt it was an opportunity that I could have finished a bit higher, but you know, you just got to accept it. But again, hungry for more. Now, the 1995 World Championships is when the world was really introduced to Garda Shua, who, yeah. um, from Syria, who kind of came out of nowhere. I think she was a name sort of bubbling around, but she suddenly came and was doing these huge scores, um, kind of unbeatable for the next couple of years at least. Um, had you, did you know about her before, or did she come out of nowhere for you as well? Well, she was not a junior athlete that I recognised um, you know, I competed against Zanovic and a few of the of the um, heptathletes as a junior. Um, <clears throat> but obviously competing at Gotsits in, in May, the competition you know very well. Yes. Um, I, I had come across Garda there and um, we're just like, whoa, she, she's, she's dangerous. She's good. She's really good. And so it was no surprises to me that she would then go on to a, become Olympic champion and also win those championships in uh, 95. Um, there's always been like a lot of camaraderie between um, heptathletes. Were there any particular, you know, just just think of your era. Um, actually, I've got a, got a good question here about it. It says, um, you competed at a time when there was lots of um, some greats of the event. Um, Sabine Brown, Eunice Barber, Karen in the Kluft. I'd love to know our thoughts on these women. Was there a particular rival you had um, or one you more respected or anyone you were closer to than others? Oh, back then there was a lot of, Really talented uh, athletes, uh, heptathletes in particular. Sabine, I think, probably would get the nod for me. She she was such a formidable competitor. Um, she, you know, she's got one of the high scores in heptathlon and her longevity in, in the event yeah. was just speaks volumes. Um, technically sound, as you'd expect, as a German. Her throws are strong. <laughs> and so she was one that I just thought, whoa, how do you beat her? And so in 97, at the World Championships, um, having got better of her at Gotsits, you know, I set the British and Commonwealth record back in, in, in May. I thought, okay, this is the championships that's, that I, I could potentially potentially win. But Sabine was having none of it. <laughs> she was having none of it. She literally destroyed me the first two events. You know, I think it was close to her personal best in the hurdles. Um, again, another strong, solid high jump. And I just sort of sat there thinking, you're just awesome. You're just awesome. Because she was coming to the end of her career at that stage. And she just, it was like, no, I'm not done yet. Those championships were, were hers. And she was just strong from the get-go. She had a really long career for a heptathlete because heptathletes, because it's so demanding on the body, your careers don't tend to be that that long. She was at the 84 Olympics and she won a medal at the Europeans in 2002. So that's crazy. That's 16 years. It's just you know. ridiculous. She was in her late 30s when she retired. So Yeah, but strong. So for, for me, she was one of the, the best. I, I just um, admired her, um, respectful. Um, but again, I beat her in 96. 96 well, I was going to say, we, 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 skipped, we skipped something really important there, I was going to say. Yeah. Um, in between your, your Commonwealth and your um, World Silver, you actually got a, a bronze at the Olympic Games. Um, there's something very special happened here at the Olympic Games because you actually got to compete against the GOAT, um, against the, the, the best of all time in the heptathlon, which is JJK, Jackie, Jackie Jonah Kersey. Um, although, strangely, you only when I say compete, you only got to compete against her in one event because she dropped out after the hurdles, didn't she? I know, she did. But just to be in the warm-up, on the warm-up track with her, you know, it was almost like 
you, I went down to the track early because obviously I was petrified by first Olympics. Um, and it was just waiting for JJK to arrive, you know, <laughs> with the entourage. And um, yeah, you just spend the time watching her, really. Uh, but yeah, first hurdles, but I was already foiled by them because the roar in the stadium when her name was announced was was just immense. Was that your only encounter with her? Um, up to that point, yeah. Yeah. Up to that point. Um, but you ne- you never competed within a heptathlon with her again? No, I'd seen, I'd later on see her at various yeah. uh, major championships, Olympics and, and Worlds just in the, on the warm-up track, but that was the only time I competed against her. Well, at least you can say you did that, even if it was just 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 the one event. Just the one event. Um, so this is from um, Weybridge Evan. I'd like to ask on the seven two nine one and Denise's opinion on whether it's a realistic target for the current crop. Um, uh, Jackie Jonakersi's total PBs came to over seven thousand six hundred. Is it realistic anyone's going to get close to that anytime soon? Well, I'm damned if I do, damned if I don't commit to that answer, isn't it? Because if I say no, <laughs> someone's going to pop out with a, a seven three. Um, but uh, I think it just might be a, a bridge too far. I think it might be a bridge too far. I think Tiam Tiam hasn't got the speed that yeah. Jackie had, and that would be her poss- possibly limiting factor. I mean, I can see her do getting seven one. Even if someone was to creep and get seven two, they just won't get the record. I, I think that's fair to say. Um, someone will. And as, as for Kat, again, with she's got great speed. Um, her jumping ability is, is phenomenal. But it would be the throws that would stop her. I mean, Jackie was a 15-metre thrower in the shot put, you know, 50-metre thrower in the javelin. Yeah. You know, she could run 210, 208, 800. Um, you know, her long jump was off the, off the chart. So it's just, I can't see it. I can't see it. It was a very bit different era when the world record was set. Um, yes. Do you think it's, it's fair that it still stands? Um, and do you think uh, it, it, should have gone. it will ever be broken? I it should have gone. I, I think it should have been changed. When they changed the women's javelin spec, they, they should have changed the heptathlon world record as well. Um, in fact, they missed an opportunity to... Yeah, just to make it more, yeah, going to the new millennium with some new goals, new ideals. Um, so that's an opportunity missed. And I, I just don't know whether that will ever be broken for now. Um, and who would you say is the most sort of natural talent in the event that you've ever seen? Natural talent? <gasps> well, I mean, having watched her up close and personal, um, again, I didn't know it at the time that I was coming to the end of my career, but she still seemed to be at the top of hers. I don't know why she stopped so early. Um, was Carolina Kluft. I agree. Carolina Kluft. I mean, she had everything. You know, everything you'd want from a heptathlete. Uh, she was aggressive. Uh, she was technically sound. Um, bounce back ability, which I think you need. You know, just a level temperament. Um, she knew how to use the crowd to her advantage. Um, great competitor. Really, really great competitor. And no, no weak spots, really. No. She, just did, she had nothing... No, she never made you nervous. You never thought that like, she wasn't going um, to get that jump or, or 
um, clear that hurdle. Yeah, I mean, she wasn't she wasn't the most technically sound in shot put, but just her determination would get that yeah. thing out to high 14 metres, 15 metres if she needed to. Um, she was able to respond to whatever was going on. And obviously she had some great duels with um, Eunice, Eunice Barber from France. Um, again, beast of a heptathlete. She would just, you know, will herself over that high jump bar. Um, you know, her throws, that javelin was good. Shot was just, just, she didn't feel it. She just didn't feel it. It was terrible. Yeah, but yeah, Kluft, Kluft was the most um, effortless and probably the most talented I've, see, I've seen with my eyes. Um, going back to um, Atlanta, you, you got the bronze medal, but at one point during that competition, you nearly, you nearly quit. <laughs> yes, yes, I did. Uh, again, again, the mind is so... Uh, it has to be right in this game. You know, you can't expect to have all the performances without, without a strong, sound mind. And um, staying in the moment is so key in heptathlon. And I allowed the occasion what I thought and where I thought I ought to be within that competition based on, again, earlier performances in the year. I just thought I, I, I should be better than I, I'm performing at that moment. And so when the long jump then, I jumped 6.32 or something like that, but that was disappointing for me. Yeah. Uh, and I just, I, I, I don't cry very often. And you, you certainly won't see me crying in the, in the competition, but that I really did lose it after then. I was so upset, so upset. I just felt I'd let everyone down, that sense of, um, you know, the region was proud of me. The Midlands, my club, you know, I was adding to the tradition of Birchfield, of having an Olympian in, in the team. Um, and I had an outside chance of getting a medal and it, it just looked like my, my hopes had been dashed after what was very, very mediocre performances. But the, um, the j- javelin came to the rescue. Dun, 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 yeah, the javelin, <laughs> the javelin, my friend. Uh, again, it was just that sense of, um, I think my, my physio, Kevin Lidlow at the time said to me, come on, Denise, you know, you, you can really pull this out of the bag. You just, just give it a go. Just relax, relax into it. Focus on what you've got to do. And, um, and yeah. I made that javelin fly again. And Sabina Brown, who we talked about earlier, came up to me. She's just like, how did you do that? (laughs) How did you do that? (laughs) And I just, I had to shrug my shoulders because it was just summoning something from deep within. And that maybe that fear of failing um, at a championships again was what gave me that focus. And so, again, elevated into bronze position. For Britain, the 96 Olympics were basically a disaster. I mean, you were our only female medalist on the um, athletic side, but during the whole Olympics, we only got one gold medal, which was um, Steve Redgrave. Um, You, well, not just you, I think the whole country realised that there was (laughs) something amiss. And things changed pretty soon after that. The National Lottery was brought in and that. Um, Do you think that that particular failure of the Olympics had had a big effect on sort of our success going forward oh absolutely De- absolutely i mean sport uh, became it used to be you know when you think about sport and comparative studies you know national identity was symbolized with how success your sport was going to be as well and so um us failing on a, a global scale was just not on you know just not on and, and yeah the, the the landscape really did change lot of funding afforded athletes 
to make decisions um, that they weren't previously able to do. Like, you know, we grew up with a tradition of people working part-time and training and trying to, to marry the two. Um, athletes were able to become a bit more full-time and focus solely on sports. Um, some sports that never had the opportunity to have funding were allowed to, to, um, to be professional. And that was important. And I think we, we haven't really looked back since then. No. Because um, it's amazing that we got one gold medal in 1996 and we came 36th on the middle table. Um, and the last Olympics, I think we got like 58 or 60 or something. And we came second on the middle table. I mean, that's just crazy. Crazy, isn't it? Um, I feel a bit sorry, actually, for Olympic champions these days, because even back when you won, I don't know, maybe won like 10 gold medals or something. Um, when you win 60, it must be very easy to get sort of lost in the, the shuffle now. You could make a name for yourself for the next, as we know, 20 years as Olympic gold medalist. But there's people who won in 2016 who we don't even remember their names now. It's, it's tough, but I think it's a great position to be in, don't you? Hmm. I mean, you wouldn't have it any other way. No, no, I'm not knocking it. <laughs> yeah, more success, I think, is great. It still affords people the opportunities. Um, nowadays, you, <laughs> the medal plus, you know, your social media following seems to be all you need. So, yeah. you know, I, I just think it's, it's great to see so many other sports getting into the fray and, and, and becoming and getting a following and a fan base that they probably wouldn't have had if they hadn't had those those key role models and winners in the sport it gives opportunity because it, it should filter down and in a lot of the sports that have been successful it has yeah absolutely you look at something like gymnastics you know which is oh. weird like one of the we've, we've never won anything to gymnastics and then suddenly we're like one of the top top teams in top the world teams. Which is crazy. yeah te- one of yeah. the teams to be which is is amazing you um we talked about the worlds in 97 you got a silver medal which is great mm-hmm. you know you, you were beaten by a, a better competitor on the day um but after that you had a big big change um you've been with Daryl Bunn your coach for what sort of for 13, 13, 10, 14, 13 years something years, like that yeah, yeah. um but the two of you had been it just been I suppose just a bit growing pains I suppose you'd just grown up you were more independent than you'd been and the the relationship was sort of breaking down and at the same time you'd started working on the side with Charles Uncommony just doing the odd um odd session that with him um harkens back to actually when you were 13 moving from um um one club to, to the other back in back in the 80s um you actually had to go to your coach of all these years who brought you all this success and explain that you know you were going to move you were moving to Amsterdam Charles Uncommony was going to be your coach that seems like a really really hard decision to have to make but a necessary one yeah I mean it was heart-wrenching at the time um you know friends family my club you know (laughs) having to leave my club I I just felt I'd outgrown (sighs) the situation the coaching dynamic you know I needed I needed more I needed you know at the time Daryl was a full-time teacher you know I was doing a lot of sessions on my own um which I think is okay for an athlete, but when your event is really technical, you need the eyes on on you, otherwise you start picking up bad habits, and it just wasn't ideal. Um, And so I needed needed something else. Um, And I wasn't really sure who to work with. And I'd met Charles on a few heptathlon competitions, um, very loud at times was that guy so <laughs> I, and I and I listened to how he coached some of his other athletes and I, I thought oh maybe he might be an option but I wasn't sure whether he was looking for any athletes or would, would even coach me 
and he did say actually that he wouldn't probably like to coach me because he doesn't think I, I listen. <laughs> was, it, was he right? Mm, probably. <laughs> yes. It's a bit too headstrong, I've been told at times. But he's a very contentious figure, you know. He's um yeah. he's he's very headstrong, you know, he's very got very he's very got his def- uh, he's got a definite way about him, you know. He tells it like it is, yeah. which I think rubs a lot of people up the wrong way. Of course he became the head of um British athletics for a while, um, back in the day. It wasn't well not that long ago. But um he I'm not sure what what his legacy was when he left because I always felt when he came in, I was really excited because I thought we needed that sort of the the heads being knocked together kind of thing. But by the time he left, I think he kind of burnt some bridges. Um, how did you find working with him? Did, did you have an easy relationship? I would say it, it's easy when you understand the individual. I think um, he taught me a lot. He taught me very much about getting more from your training sessions. That. You know, training wasn't just, uh, you know, shouldn't just be methodical. There has to be a lot more mental application and focus that goes into it. And um, discipline, you know, I used to hate when I was late to training. If I was ever late, I'd get, oh my gosh, I'd get roasted. Um, so he taught, got, taught me a lot more discipline and thought about my training and its entirety and, and how to get the best out of it and really engaged me in, in the process. Um, whereas before, I probably was led a little bit too much. Um, I wasn't tough enough in, on, the, on the track, in training. I was a really good competitor, but I needed to up my game after, after the, the, the Olympics that I needed to get tough. And so I think he really did give me that. So working with him was was fine because I would just predominantly laugh at his um, hot headedness. <laughs> um, but he was very adaptable because he's only like that with people that he thinks need it. You yeah. know, with the athletes that um, needed a different approach, he would offer a different approach and a different solution. But he was always clear about performance. Anything that he was doing was about to better the performance. Um, it wasn't about ego. It was about um, making sure that you got your best out of yourself and that when you were competing and things got tough, that you knew how to get tougher. He very famously like wasn't very happy with um, Kelly Southerton when she won an Olympic um, bronze medal. And he sort of told her off afterwards, telling her she should have gone for the silver. Um, but one of the reasons you actually went with him, it seems, is because he said about your 97 performance um, that you hadn't won a silver, you'd lost the gold. That's right. Um, and he said that to you. Um, after you were quite happy with the silver. <laughs> I, I was delighted. I was literally, <laughs> it's one step away, I'm one step away, I'm one step before, um, better than the bronze. And so I was really delighted. And everyone around me, the team, happy, GB team. Um, and yeah, he... I was going to say, he, 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 he put water on my chips. <laughs> <laughs> you can swear on, you, you can swear on this podcast, it's, it's t- totally fine. Um, but it seemed to work, 98 was like your, your best year up to that point. You know, you won the Europeans, you won the Commonwealths again for the second time. You were nominated for the Sports Personality of the Year. You came um, second to, to Michael Owen. Yeah. I never really, never really, yeah, team, I don't, don't get it when that team competitors win the individual. I don't, I don't, but let's, let's not get, um, you know, the supporters downing on us. I just didn't get it. I was like, really? Really? Even if it wasn't me, but really Michael Owen? Bless him. Yeah. Bless him, yeah. <laughs> um, but that was the year that you really sort of stamped your um, 
authority on the athletics world, on the, the British um, public's consciousness, I think, as well. Um, did you, did that, was that really clear to you at the time? I just think it's about consistency. And at the time, we had a handful of people getting medals, especially women in, in our sport. A handful of women getting, in, getting medals. Um, obviously, Kelly had got uh, a couple in, in um, 1995 at, at yeah. the World Championships, some injuries. But still, medals were very few and far between from our, our, our females' counterparts. And so I think that drip-fed Denise is on the rostrum, Denise is on the podium, she's on the podium again and again, really at the time, I think, um, embraced, that people embraced that. And um, I, I feel like people began to trust that I was able to deliver at big, big, big um, competitions. In your head, the 2000 Olympics has already been, always been the one you were sort of aiming for. That's where you thought your best, best chance was going to be. And up to this point, you know, you've got a really, really good, steady progression built, yeah. building up to that. Um, you had a great year in 98. Um, going into 99, again, injuries kind of scuppered it a bit. Um, again, you won the silver medal, but by this point, you were really aiming for gold. Mm. Yeah, I think... I don't think it's well documented and no one wants to hear about all the trials and tribulations, but you know, my pathway, it wasn't always the smoothest. You know, I had a, I had a lot of niggles, a lot of injuries. Um, you know, my feet have been a blessing and a curse to me, you know, flat footed bunions and a really dodgy left ankle. Um, and that played havoc with my career. And even back then, so going into 99, I sustained an injury um, on the right foot. But I also had to change off my takeoff leg for the second time in my career. That's crazy. So like I, the idea of doing it once, we were talking to um, Christian Taylor last week and we were yeah. saying that he's done it. Jess Ennis has done it. Um, but you've done it twice. You, you went, to, went to one leg and then you went back to the other leg. Yeah. Which at the time you you thought was crazy when they suggested that to you. I just thought, I think, for real. My my doctor was like, in in order to protect this ankle, you know, it's getting overloaded. You're going to have to split the jumps up again. You're going to have to stop jumping off your left leg again (laughs) and and move back to the right, which was my original takeoff leg. And all of this in the space of, what, um, sorry, May, June, July, August, September. Yeah, so I about four, three, four months ahead of the World Championships in 99, so that was severe. Yeah. And I just thought, it's just impossible. So what were your expectations going in? You know, with all that sort of troubled build-up, and you came across a, a Eunice Barber who was on fire. Um, Hilary Evans has asked, I always wondered what your opinions of her were. You two had a lot of rivalry and head-to-heads during this period. Did you get on with each other? So in 99, she was your... Biggest rival. She had a great, great year that year. Mm. Um, at your best, you'd had um, problems with injuries. You know, as you say, you changed your, your takeoff leg. Going into the championship, did you honestly think you could beat her? I was ready to give it a go. And you've got to believe that you can beat anybody on the day. Um, I hadn't been throwing. That was the year that I hadn't been throwing at all. I was banned from throwing by my doctor because I had chronic um, inflammation in my throwing shoulder and so I had like a, a three three month hiatus from throwing and boy all the seeds of uh, doubt had started to creep into my head of course, yeah. it's like you know how can you be not how can you beat her when you've 
you're not throwing. You know, she's she's strong. She she has what it takes to win. And so going into the competition, I thought, you know, I, I just, I'm just going to give it what I can. Um, but the question is, how did I feel about her? I've been competing with, since, with Eunice since 95. Yeah. You know, so I knew her very well. Um, she was always quite closed, although she was a loud competitor. She was quite, <laughs> she was, she was quite closed when she was younger. So back in, you know, as I said, 90, 95, we, we didn't really exchange much at all. But as the years went on, she had a couple of injuries and uh, went quiet. She started training with um, Bobby Kersey. Um, um, in the States as well. So she was doing the dual training uh, blocks and camps. And um, we always had a polite nod to each other on the warm-up track. Um, I was not ever, ever sure about her, the level of her English, later to find out that her actually English was quite good. It wasn't that bad at all. Um, but she was fierce and she was determined. So she thought she could beat anybody. She was fierce. We used to know her quite well back in the day. She was just one of those athletes, for whatever reason, we just met her a few times at championships and she'd always come and say hello. And she used to live in Elephant and Castle. And, and I used to live in Elephant and Castle and I bumped into an Elephant and Castle once in the, in the early, early noughties. And I was like, what on earth? <laughs> Why am I bumping into a world championship on the, on the roundabout at Elephant and Castle? It was very strange. But she, she, was, she was a very, very, very um, sort of fierce competitor. You could see that from, yeah. her, um, from her style. And yes. she made a lot of noise. She used to make a lot of noise before she ran, didn't she, or jumped. There was lots of... Did that get on your nerves? Was that getting the, I mean, it was happened in the changing room. I mean, the call room. She was prancing about. She'd be whoop-whooping and whoa and whoa. <laughs> As, you know, <laughs> struggling to find your own sort of uh, moment of calm and, and uh, engagement in your, your feelings and emotions at that time. But she would be slapping herself and she'd do that at the start of the hurdles race she really knew how to fire herself up and there again there has to be an acceptance and you start to learn your competitors you watch them you know that that belongs to them that's their thing and I will not allow that to ruffle me um so yeah I I liked Eunice in fact, there's not really a heptathlete that I haven't liked, you know. There's no reason not to like somebody, uh, you know, we're competing, we're going for the same things. That, that's as far as it, it, it goes for me. It's just, we're, we're competitors, that's it. At the end, shake your hand, we'll have a chat, talk about how painful the 800 is, <laughs> and, uh, and move on. See you the next time. Hi, this is Tony Minicello, and you're listening to The Backstraight Boys. <laughs> Perfect. Hi guys, Bayo here. Sorry to interrupt, but we're going to leave it there on a massive cliffhanger as Denise builds up to the games that defined her career. But don't worry, we'll be back very soon with the rest of our Denise Lewis Backstreet Boys interview special.